Welcome to the intersection of faith and the culture. It's Wall Builders Live. We're taking on the hot topics of the day from a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective. And today is Foundations of Freedom Thursday. So that means we're diving into your questions. We appreciate you sending those in. You can send them to radio at wallbuilders.com. Also recommend that you visit wallbuilders.com today for that one-time or monthly contribution. I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution coach and a former Texas legislator here with America's premier historian, David Barton, and Tim Barton, national speaker and pastor and president of Wall Builders. And Tim has been sharing some great heroes of history with us at the beginning of every program this month. And uh, and Tim, we've got, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe like seven or eight more to go. But uh, today we're kind of in the middle of February. And so far you've already shared, I don't know, 10 or 11 of these stories. So I've lost count, but they are so good. And the good news is everybody can get them at our website at wobblers.com. So visit there today. But Tim, who are you sharing with us today? Well, today is Paul Cuff or Paul Cuffey, or Paul Cuffey. I do not know how to pronounce his last name. Uh, I, I generally know how to spell it. He's not uh, answering his phone. He's not returning our calls. You know, He's yes. Just, yeah. uh, when, when we get to heaven, if he was bothered by the way I pronounce his name, he can let me know. Uh, other than that, I, I have no idea. But he is someone that has been so fun to find out more about. And we, Rick, you mentioned, we've already gone through, I, I think, 11 heroes this point. Uh, Paul is hero number 12 that we are highlighting in the month of February. But but we, we can go so much further beyond even the ones we've talked about. But Paul was somebody that as we begin diving into his story, we actually kind of found out about him roundabout way. Uh, and what even led us to want to explore the story more was we were able to get an artifact. Uh, maybe a, a year, two, three years ago, something relatively recently, we got an artifact and it was talking about an equality ball that was hosted by John Hancock in Massachusetts, and the guest of honor was Paul Cuffey. And this was in 1792. We have an equality ball celebrating blacks and whites being equal in Massachusetts. And this is after they've already passed their anti-slavery law, or more specifically, when they wrote their new constitution, and their constitution outlined that their state would ban slavery. So legally, slavery cannot exist in Massachusetts, and... There was a snippet from a newspaper, and the newspaper was done by a pro-slavery newspaper as they were talking about how ridiculous it was what was happening in Massachusetts, where John Hancock wanted to honor Paul Cuffey and other notable leaders where you're talking about individuals coming together and just as humans coming together, not necessarily because we're black and white, but just individuals coming together. It was a time to honor and to enjoy equality together. And this newspaper said, how ridiculous is this? We didn't even know about this. So we said, okay, what's this equality ball? Let's go look it up. Let's find out more about this. And as we did, we thought, okay, then we really need to learn Paul's story more, see who he was and what he did. And when you start backing up, it really becomes interesting as this unfolds. So uh, Paul Cuff's father was brought to America as a slave from Ghana, Africa. And when his father arrived, uh, there was a group of Quakers who came and actually purchased uh, him, was able to to get him free. Uh, Well, then Paul's father met a Wampanoag Indian, and, and the Wampanoags were the ones who made the longest lasting peace treaty between any natives and any white people in American history. It was with the Pilgrims. And so Paul's father married a Wampanoag Indian, and then along comes Paul several years later. And so Paul grows up when when he's 13, his father's passed away. He decides that he needs to figure out how to make a living. So Paul's parents 
uh, actually were able to get a farm, sizable farm. So Paul grew up in a I mean, pretty nice circumstance and situation, all things considered. He really liked the sea. His parents weren't interested in the sea. He's able to get on board a ship. He's part of the crew. And Dad, I'm going to throw this to you. Uh, picking up with now he's at the sea. He's at sea, and this is in the American War for Independence, and he's on an American ship, and the British capture that ship. So he's been captured by the British, and the British don't want supplies going to America. Well, once he gets free, he takes and sets his own shipping business and actually chose that he wanted to be a blockade runner to get supplies back into America. So his ships were known for getting around the British ships and getting supplies to the Americans, and shipping was his life. It's what he loved. And it's worth noting, he's only 21 years old at this time. So, you know, maybe because he's young and feels a little uh, invincible or maybe because he just bought into the cause of liberty so much. He was so much against the tyranny and oppression of England. But th- this isn't a a well-advanced individual in age and stature and whatever else. This is a 21-year-old young man who is doing this in the heart, the middle of the American Revolution. Uh, he is helping get supplies to Americans as needed. And so he loves the shipping thing. And so after the war is over, he stays in shipping. He starts building a business by 1789, which is eight years after the war's ended. It's it's only six years after the peace treaty. He has this global shipping business. He's got this shipping business that goes all over the world. And his sons are captains of a ship, which is the kind of neat thing for the family to do. So he becomes very, very wealthy. Um, he's in all this this work. And as part of that, he takes part of that wealth and starts saying, hey, I, I want to help others enjoy the freedom I've got. And, and so he actually helps uh, initially set up the colony of Liberia, which was a colony in Africa for for free Africans to go where they wouldn't be discriminated against. And so he's really involved in the anti-slavery movement as well. Well, and speaking of anti-slavery movement, th- there was also a lot of connections with the Quakers. And over time, he ends up becoming a Quaker, which I think is also very cool because the Quakers are the ones that helped his father find freedom. And, and, and by the way, the Quakers, they're the—they're about the only group back then that would spend their own money to go buy slaves strictly for the purpose of freeing them. Uh, you know, everybody else could work in the legislative stuff. They just went and bought individuals and freed them. And that's, that's a tremendous outlay of money for people to do that. And, and so at this point, this is where he is known as a, a, he's a wealthy merchant. He's, he's been noted in the American Revolution as a blockade runner, helping get supplies. Well, now he's pretty noted in the anti-slavery movement. And this is what leads up to the equality ball with John Hancock. So you have a noted anti-slavery American Revolution patriot, established business owner who now is being honored by John Hancock. And actually, uh, one of the things that was still kind of big at that time, uh, as far as if you wanted to make a lot of money, if you had ships, the the probably most profitable or one of the most profitable industries back then was the slave trade. And Paul Cuff said, look, that's unethical. It's immoral. We're, I, I don't want to do anything that's unethical and immoral. And there's some interesting reports on him being noted as a man of character and integrity. And so he wouldn't allow any of his ships to do something that he thought was unethical or immoral on any level whatsoever. So he was an incredible black leader, prominent both in America and that even as you mentioned abroad, some of what he did. And his life was an example of of leadership, of service, of sacrifice, and of Christian faith. So he's one of the really fun people that in, in a page and a half, we have told his story uh, at wallbrothers.com. You can go find out more about that. But there's lots of footnotes, and there's way more to this guy's story than we got into. But he certainly is a hero of the faith and an American hero along the way. To find out more, go to wallbuilders.com and look for Paul Cuffey 
And and by the way, the reason that his last name is maybe a little challenging, and I'm sure we're going to have some grammar people, some phonics people are going to try to offer suggestions, maybe other languages as well. But his last name is C-U-F-F-E. And back then, you also might know that sometimes things were spelled differently on different occasions. Uh, and that's also where there's some dispute to how his last name is pronounced and even spelled. Nonetheless, a great hero to find out more about. One of many great stories that we've had so far this month and many more to come. Check it out at wallbuilders.com to learn more. Guys, it is Foundations of Freedom Thursday, so we've got several questions we're going to try to get to today. First one's coming from Steve in California. Interesting question. He said, the concept of Native Americans concerns me. We're taught that in the Americas, they immigrated across a land bridge up by Alaska many, many, many years ago. Doesn't that disqualify them from being indigenous or native to the Americas. So uh, I guess, guys, where when is native uh, applicable and when is native not applicable? Anybody after Adam and Eve is not native. I mean, they own the whole earth. God gave them everything, and everybody else immigrated from Adam and Eve. So there, there's no native Russians. There's no native Americans. There's no native French. They're all descendants of, of Adam and Eve. I mean, well, maybe technically, right, if you were, if you were one of Adam and Eve's kids and they owned everything, then, right— you're not even a native. Oh, that's true. I mean, arguably, right? Like, yeah. it, it, but but I think to your point, right? If we had a biblical perspective, and you go to the Tower of Babel, right? Because that's when the disbursement really happens on the level that arguably is supposed to happen. And with that being said, I, like we understand the heart of the question of how do we define who's a native, who's not a native, and this is one of the challenges with semantics along the way, with some of the changing definitions and even some of the more modern application of wokeism on some level. Because if, as was just mentioned, if you look back historically, how do people think that America was populated? Because there was a land bridge, right? Coming from Asia into North America. Well, if there was a land bridge, then technically everybody that came over, right? They're, they're immigrants are not technically a native. So, so when do we define what native looks like? Because also you can make some arguments about, well, the people in South America, right? Did, did, did they come also from the land bridge from Asia or was there something else along the way? There's there's a lot of unknowns in this, but it's it, it is semantics that there are some distinctions and differences worth noting. And it, unfortunately, in this woke era, natives is used in kind of this Marxist ideology to put people in different groups and categories and, and largely to say, well, these are the oppressed people and these are people that are oppressed by white Europeans or whatever else. And, and if you just know some basic history, the most oppressive people to other natives were, in fact, other native tribes. And it's not to say that Western Europeans or white Europeans didn't do anything oppressive. Oh, of course, every single people group has done some awful evil things in their time. But in the history of Native Americans, the most oppressive and brutal treatment Native Americans ever received were from other Native Americans. Well, actually, the only people that oppressed anybody else were humans, which means everybody. And so going to your point, Tim, if you look at someone like Andrew, and I think you hit it. This, this is a term that really came in with part of the woke stuff. When the progressives got education, then you started dividing people into groups, and you have not Americans, you have Native Americans. And so you can't be an American. You have to be a different group. And so when you look at someone like Andrew Jackson, which the way he's presented with Native Americans is, is as president, he signed 70 Indian Removal Acts. 70 times he did things to take land away from Indians. 
I will point out, Andrew Jackson came nowhere close to taking the amount of land away from Indians that the Comanches took away from other tribes. I mean, when the Comanches were finally defeated by, by the army, uh, 1875, there were 13 tribes the Comanches had conquered who were fighting side by side with the American soldiers to wipe out the Comanches. I mean, it's not a it's not a white guy kind of thing. Well, and, and that's specifically thirteen tribes that had enough of a population left to join left. with the cavalry. That's a great point. Great not point. including the ones that were totally extinct. But, but but to your point, Dad, when you look back at what the progressives did taking over in the early nineteen hundreds, when progressives took over, they started changing a lot of the narrative and mantra in a Marxist direction. That the progressive movement was largely a Marxist movement. And so even as we talk about woke terminology now, woke terminology is just fitting in line with this Marxist ideology that progressives tried to implement for literally more than 100 years at this point on some level. And they they didn't always use the same tactics, the same strategy, because at times they try to do implementation in an economic system or now we're seeing it much more in a racial system. But the same idea remains. It's to divide and then turn the groups against each other so they can conquer and, and this is not to diminish at all any kind of, of Native American heritage. That's not what we're talking about. But we're talking about in a Marxist ideology when we're not saying let's look at individuals and the specific individuals in their story and even gain context on this because context makes such a big difference. What actually happened when so often we look at, at a simplistic narrative today and the simplistic narrative is that certain groups of people oppressed certain other groups of people. And if you were oppressed, you didn't do anything wrong. And that's why you were oppressed. When even more recent movies that have come out where I, I think, guys, was it Woman King? I think that was the name of the movie of the tribe that was trying to, to fight the colonizers because of they were trying to end slavery and the colonizers are, are enslaving their people when that's not what happened at all. The Woman King, right, specifically in this story, was leading the enslavement of their own people. But because now there was somebody else competing maybe in the slave market or somebody in the slave market, the colonizers saying, hey, you probably shouldn't treat your people that way. There was a war, but it was not as simplistic as saying one group was bad and one group was good. It's, it, it, history is very seldom ever that simplistic. And today, because we don't know a lot of the story, we're, we're buying into things that are not historically accurate. This is why we will tell people all the time, make sure you find original sources. We tell this for parents. When you look at your kids' books, one of the major grievances I have with so many of the modern history books today is not just that they tell a bad story, it's they don't footnote anything they're telling. It's not just that they're lying, it's that the omission of footnotes without even, nobody's even telling kids, hey, if you want to make sure this is true, go back and look at the source and here's how we evaluate sources. And, and if it's not an original source, and actually even if it is an original source, like understanding who this person was that wrote it and what's the context of their life and where did they come from to get a bigger picture to understand what is happening. This is where the distortion of history is happening on so many levels. So it's not that we're against calling someone a native or a native American. It's not that we're against any kind of Indian tribe, but to your point, there is so much more to the story that people want to discount. And so often it's being discounted because it doesn't fit the Marxist narrative or Marxist agenda. And that's what we have to be careful of. And going back to Jackson for a minute, when you look at the 70 Indian removal acts that he signed, as a result of that, the, the United States got basically most of Alabama and about one fifth of Georgia. Okay. So that that's the 70 land removal acts, that's what that's what he got as a result. When you look at the Comanche land removal acts, which is exterminate everybody, it goes from Mexico City up to the middle United States above Colorado. Now, that's a lot more land than Jackson took, and Jackson gets condemned, and Native Americans get a free pass? 
No, no. If you judge by behavior, that's really bad to wipe out all those tribes. Well, and again, this is not to say that Jackson did something bad. It's just say, let's let's look at the whole story. That's right. Let, let's see what happened. Because also we wouldn't say, right, like every Native American tribe is bad because of that's the right. Comanches. Well, no, you have to look at individuals because, again, we're not even looking at entire tribes necessarily unless it's like looking at a nation and the policies of that nation and the practices of that nation. And if there was beheading or raping or scalping or whatever it was, you can say, okay, the nation that did this, that was bad of that nation to do. But the point is, again, that you have to have a little more context and a little more history. And if we're going to go back to the notion that there was a land bridge and that there was nobody in North America before the land bridge, if that's what we're telling, then it does seem a little inconsistent to say that these were the natives to America when, in fact, there was nobody in North America before the land bridge, if that's the argument. And the argument, too, that says, well, you're the white races, so you're always oppressors. Go back for a minute to Jackson's experience, even Andrew Jackson. Growing up in, in North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, the Catawbas and the Chickasaw would come help the white settlers fight the Seminoles and the Creek and the Cherokee, who were always fighting everybody, including other Indian tribes. So you actually have good Indian tribes that are trying to fight the bad Indian tribes, and they do it with the Anglos because they have a common—you you can't even divide the, the native tribes up and say they're all good or they're all bad. They're humans. There's good and bad among them, and, and that's the way you have to see history. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more questions here on Wild Builders Live. It's Foundations of Freedom Thursday. friends, this is Tim Barton of Wall Builders. This is a time when most Americans don't know much about American history or even Hebrews of the faith. And I know oftentimes for parents, we're trying to find good content for our kids to read. And if you remember back to the Bible, to the book of Hebrews, it has the Faith Hall of Fame where they outlined the leaders of faith that had gone before them. Well, this is something that as Americans, we really want to go back and outline some of these heroes, not just of American history, but heroes of Christianity and our faith as well. I want to let you know about some biographical sketches we have available on our website. One is called the Courageous Leaders Collection. And this collection includes people like Abigail Adams, Abraham Lincoln, Francis Scott Key, George Washington Carver, Susanna Wesley, even the Wright brothers. And there's a second collection called Heroes of History. In this collection, you'll read about people like Benjamin Franklin or Christopher Columbus, Daniel Boone, George Washington, Harriet Tubman. Friends, the list goes on and on. This is a great collection for your young person to have and read. And it's a providential view of American and Christian history. This is available at wallbuilders.com. That's www.wallbuilders.com. We're back here on Wobblers. Thanks for staying with us on this Foundations of Freedom Thursday. Next question for the day comes from Joe, and he's asking about ESG. He said, I just finished listening to the speakers from the Pro-Family Legislators Conference concerning ESG. And for folks at home, if, if you don't know, we, we have a great conference every year with Pro-Family Legislators from across the nation, and we record the sessions, and we have so many great speakers come in. We take as many of those as we can and share them with you, our audience, here on Wobblers. So we had one talking about ESG. He said, the speakers kept referring to they. My question is, who is they? And what can we do about it? Who is behind all of this? All right, guys, this might take an entire program, but who's behind ESG and what can we do about it? Yeah, it really is pretty simple. It goes back to those who um, don't believe in God per se, but they believe that climate is God. It goes back to what you find in, in Romans one twenty, where it says that they worship the creation more than the creator. And so for those that have a God-centric view, we understand what 1 Corinthians says, we're to use and not abuse the natural resources God has given. 
But for those on the climate change side, they worship that. And man is the, the lowest level there is. Man is the most dangerous thing. You cannot let him do anything to threaten their God, which is climate. So what you have is if you look at the World Economic Forum, if you look at the Davos Group over in Europe, those are the guys driving ESG internationally. With them, 400 banks have joined on and said, hey, we'll stop funding people. We'll stop loaning the money, people who don't have our climate agenda. So they includes people that place the creation above the creator. And that includes most of the big banks, every, every large bank. Now, U.S. Bank is starting to get out of this, but every other large bank in America um, mostly the chain banks, if you're a local bank, if you're a, a local credit union, something like that, so that they are those on the economic side. That has now moved into the insurance field. Uh, they're starting to give insurance based on how you are with ESG, your ESG ratings. So it is people who handle the, the big financial institutions. And if they're a global institution, they're probably going to be pro-ESG if they're local kind of local state, state banks, those are going to be not ESG. So that's that's pretty much the answer. That's the way you can divide that is those those big corporate, the, the big business, the big global versus kind of the small business, mom and pop kind of stuff. All right, guys. So probably no time for to take another audience question. But, David, I want to ask you about these these uh, two Supreme Court decisions, uh, state Supreme Court decisions we've gotten in the last uh, few months that are actually opposite. Idaho had a good one. They upheld uh, a pro-life law. South Carolina, believe it or not, had a, a bad Supreme Court decision. They struck down the state's six-week abortion ban. What do you think about this? Yeah, I, I, this is such a, a good point to make because you have the same issue before two courts and they get opposite decisions. And you could say, well, the difference is state laws. Idaho has different laws from, from South Carolina. And yeah, that could be it, but that's not it in this case. In this case, what you have in South Carolina you have really clear state constitution, really clear state laws. They are pro-life. What you have is judges who are not pro-life and said, we're striking down the pro-life law. And so this is where you have a problem with lack of accountability of judges. In South Carolina, even though they're a very populist-centered state, they do not elect their judges. And this is what happens when you have appointed state judges. Um, this, is, this is coming to a state near you. If you already have appointed state judges, you need to work with your legislature to get elected state judges. Uh, Texas for a while had appointed state judges, and man, did they take us left um, because they become the, the supreme legislators. They strike down what the governor says, what the legislature says. No matter how hard we work to lobby something, they can override it with just their, their fiat decision. This is what's called the Missouri Plan, and the Missouri Plan was implemented in Missouri a couple decades ago where they said, you know, we need to elect judges who are not politically motivated, who don't respond to political pressure. They're above that. So let's not let the people have any voice in this. And so what it means is that they're no longer accountable to the people because they can't be touched by the people. They can do anything they want, and they're, they're not accountable. In those states that have it, one of the states, one of the ways you can know if your state has the Missouri kind of plan is whether you have retention elections for judges. A retention election says, well, we're going to vote on whether or not to retain this individual, and so you vote up or down on judges. Well, right now it's about 97 98% of all judges are retained because what happens when you have competition, like a primary, two folks run against each other and they point out the bad stuff the other guy does. A judge that's running for retention election, he's not going to tell you all the bad decisions he made, and if there's not an opponent to point out the bad stuff he did, you'll say, well, I haven't heard anything, so it must be fine. I'll put him back on, and this is what happens. We saw this in Kansas. 
were that you had actually the state Supreme Court of Kansas struck down parts of the state constitution as being unconstitutional by the state constitution. You can't do that. The state constitution is the highest document you've got in the state. Uh, You observe the federal constitution as well, but they struck down the death penalty because they didn't like it, even though the state constitution allowed it. So I, I say this to say you really need to start looking at judges. We talked about this back before Trump got elected. That was one of the biggest issues in his, his election. And, and this goes back to Isaiah 126, where God says he'll, he'll bless or curse a nation based on the kind of judges you have in that nation. It's the same way with states. If your state is starting to become a little more conservative, and all of them are to some degree, in the sense that the Supreme Court is doing what it should be doing. It's getting out of politics. It's giving stuff back to the states like it did with abortion. That was not a political decision. That was a decision that said, hey, we're not supposed to be making those decisions. The states are. So because the Supreme Court is giving more and more issues back to the states, you're going to find the state Supreme Court becoming more and more important. And as a result of that, let me just really, really, really encourage you that if you're in a state that does not elect its judges in competitive elections, you need to get that system changed. You need to work with your state legislators. You need to get those guys where they are accountable to the people. You don't need what South Carolina has. They've got a pro-life state, one of the strongest pro-life states in the nation, and yet their court struck down their pro-life laws because the court didn't like it. Well, wait a minute. When do eight or nine people get to tell several million people what they believe? That's where we got to change this. So on the website, wallbuilders.com, we have a piece up about the Missouri plan And you need to know about it. You need to contact your state legislators about it. You need to say, hey, we need to get this changed. Uh, You can download that that briefing on the Missouri plan, get it to your legislators, become familiar with it. And if you're in one of those two dozen or so states that does not elect your, your state Supreme Court justices, you really need to work to change that. That will make more difference in your state than about anything else you can do. All right, folks, out of time for our Foundations of Freedom Thursday program today. But please do send your questions in, radio at wallbuilders.com. If you'd like us to hit on a, maybe it's a subject, maybe it's a topic that you want to get a biblical, historical, and constitutional perspective on it, and you want to ask about it for that reason, or maybe it's a historical question. You've heard some things uh, at school, if you're a young person listening to this program, or maybe just in the political realm, be sure and send those in. We'd love to answer as many of those as possible, and then be sure and get the archives at our website, wallbuilderslive.com. That's also the place you can make a one-time or monthly contribution today. Lots of great resources for you at wallbuilders.com. So visit both of the websites today. If you would like to be a leader in your community and be one of our coaches, you can do it for free. Sign up today for free and start hosting those classes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Wall Builders. We stand undivided.